0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Seminary for the Rest of Us. I am your host, Sabrina Reyes-Peters, and this is episode four, which is the third part of my conversation with Dirk Vondrahorst, as we discuss his book, Jonathan's Loves David's Laments. In the first and second parts of this conversation, which I highly recommend you go back, and listen to before you get into this one. We get into the background of the book. uh, What is relational theology? What does that have to do with uh, David and Jonathan? And also we get into context, uh, the importance of wrestling with context, uh, particularly historical context, situational context. Uh, What does that mean when we try to look at the Hebrew scriptures to determine the nature, or the exact nature, of David and Jonathan's relationship. And in this episode, we look at what to do if, for example, as a queer person looking to David and Jonathan for a depiction of queer relationships in the Bible, you don't exactly find comfort there because studying the text actually does not yield a black and white conclusion. In Dirk's case, he uses church anthems from England in the 17th and 18th centuries as a vehicle in which he can relate to David and Jonathan's as a gay man. So listen in for our discussion on musical history, uh, musical interpretation, particularly history thereof, and also queer interpretation of music, among other things. Here is part three of my conversation with Dirk von der Horst. So um, in the book, uh, Jonathan's Loves, David's Limits, um, you talk about how it's problematic to take uh, one stance uh, versus another stance. Um, And you specifically say that it's problematic within, like, the queer uh, religious community to take a stance to say, yeah, their relationship was gay or, like, No, the relationship was not gay um so you turn to music instead to kind of really relate to use that as a vehicle um for relating to your queer experience Mm -hmm. um can you maybe briefly uh reiterate uh, why taking a hard lighting stance may be uh, problematic and hurtful
1: yeah well i think i think trying to take trying to settle it settle it right is you're always going to be in community with people who see things differently right yes and so so either you just say I'm right about this text and you wall yourself off from the world of disagreement, which means you wall yourself off from the world. Um, and that's not a healthy place to be. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is um, texts don't tell us how to read themselves. Right. 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 So, so there's really no way to actually get to a point where, especially in a text like this, where it, it is so ambiguous, um, where like, it's it's very hard for me to unsee a, an erotic element to David and Jonathan's story once I've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that for you know thousands of years we do not have too many texts that dwell on this story that seem to be thinking of this as an erotic relationship. We do have some, but. Um, that's not really where where people are going. We also don't have a whole lot of art before the twentieth century that is eroticized. We have pictures of David and Jonathan, but before the twentieth mm-hmm. century, we don't have pictures that are like, oh yeah, they're they're like draped over each other, and they're you know mm-hmm. like yeah. you know, all, all woo 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 uh, right. Um, so so the i so the idea that you know this this is an erotic relationship may, in fact, just be our question, right? It might not be um other people's questions. Um And the other thing is, like even when you do have depictions of in the Renaissance, for example, you have eroticized depictions of David, right? And homoerotic depictions of David. But the story that the Renaissance artists are going to, to really say, hey, David was a sexy man and sexy to men um, is not the David and Jonathan story. They're going to the David and Goliath story, mm-hmm. uh, which like to art, is like, why would that be the sexy story, right? But there seems to be this trope in the 16th century among artists of like, hey, um, David was so beautiful that the whoever looks at David is just completely destroyed by, by that much beauty. And so there's kind of this, this image of David destroying goliath right as the artist being destroyed by just this absolutely beautiful model um who you know like just completely just like leaves you a pile of blubber because you just don't know what to do with that much beauty right so you're just kind of like mm-hmm. okay I'm, I'm destroyed right so it's so even in context where we we have um people creating homoerotic narratives around David, they're not going in different contexts. They're not going to this friendship, right? They're going to this thing that to us, like, I don't know of many people in the 20th century who are like, oh yeah, uh, David and Goliath, that's really a sexy story, right? That's mm-hmm. more like, okay, that's just a violent story, right? And yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in none of the movies about David and Jonathan is, or Dave, David and Goliath, right, is that Sexualized, right? It's just like there's you know, this is big old oh, big Hulk, and then boom, and then you David's uh, victorious. But you know the idea that Goliath would just be like you know inept at doing his job because David's so pretty. I mean, you you could you could depict that in a movie pretty easily, um, and nobody does that today, right? Because we have a different way of sorting that out. Okay, so. Um, I the short answer, I think, is what the one I said before to your question, right, is the problem with with saying one person has the right answers. You really have to cut yourself off from anyone who doesn't agree with you, um, mm-hmm. which tends to be one approach that we have in our society right now, right? I think yes, Twitter, very
0: prevalent. Uh, yeah, like,
1: like, like is like you can you can create silos with social media. so there's there's a sense in which, that's something we've learned how to do very well. And I'm not sure that's ultimately to our benefit. I mean, I, I'm guilty of that as well. Right. Like if, you know, if somebody's a Trump supporter, I block them on Twitter and like, I Mm -hmm. my blood pressure can't handle that. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, at the same time, you know, that's part of um, the process of just, you know, um, you know, dividing us further and like making it harder to, get any kind of dialogue happening i think i think we're in a in a really tricky moment right now because i think there are um you know very good reasons for saying certain uh, positions should not even be entertained because that just gives them air uh, mm-hmm. right but i also think you know that has to be balanced in some way i'm not saying that's wrong but i'm i'm i'll say we have to figure out how to do that in a way that you know creates more dialogue and and creates more communication um, I don't know how to do that. But in any case, that's that's kind of the problem that we have right now is that that um, doing that walls us off. Um, so the reason i I turn to music uh, is primarily because it is a a realm, right of in which people can have experiences that are not necessarily, policed by communities um mm-hmm. so i can go home right so i can listen you know I, let's say i go to church and listen to a uh homophobic sermon right and i like you know i don't feel safe saying something about it in in the church and i'm just i feel kind of abused right i can go home and listen to some music about david and jonathan that is very eroticized right and i can really sit with that and be like no i'm not crazy or i'm not wrong or uh you know I'm not the first person to think this, or I'm not the first person to feel this, um, right? And I, can, I can kind of turn to a rich body of music that, a right, is we have we have um, a lot of technology, right? Provides a lot of ways for us to experience a lot of music. In a quote unquote, private space, right? So there's a sense in which, um if the realm of arguing over the Bible is inevitably public, right? Um, music is something that can be more or less public or private. And if you need uh, kind of a sense of like, I need to withdraw from this battle that is never going to end between people who say this was erotic, this was not erotic. um and and that has implications for larger policy. You know, a procedures like adoption or ordination or what have you, right? Or just your general sense of well-being. You you have this other way of relating to this story that's not determined by those debates, right? Or or not not necessarily determined by those debates. Mm-hmm. So the process of once once you kind of establish that that overlap in the realm of the erotic, right? Of just kind of that sense of uh sexuality, arts, music, uh, spirituality, right? If you have that kind of realm of the erotic and music is something that can heighten that sense of the erotic, right? That sense of aliveness. Then you have a access to this story in a way that whether or not it's about sex, right? It's definitely about eroticism. And that, that strong foundation, uh, in a musical experience of eroticizing the text can give you some kind of other vantage point to say, yeah, no, that's really my experience. That like I, nobody can take that experience away from me. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody can, um, you know, nobody can say I didn't have that experience. Right, I had that experience with with this music, or or, or it would also work with art or with stories. Uh, but right. music's the media that I have the uh, most visceral reaction to. That's that's the one that's most important to me. Um, so so in that sense you know the, the reason you go to music is right you have sort of an escape uh or a, a temporary refuge from uh kind of this world of just like no one this this argument over whether david or jonathan uh were lovers or not i do not think that will be resolved until humans are extinct right that that's what's going to resolve Debate um, yeah. Because there's, there's perfectly reasonable ways Of re- reading it either way um, I, I I I I, mean I have a hard time not seeing it As an erotic story but When people say I don't see that I can Completely understand why They're looking at the same text I'm looking at And getting there um, right. So, So You know in that if that's And if this is the one biblical story right That is at least in the Hebrew Bible, right? that is most clearly saying, "Hey, we actually have something in the text that seems to be like, "Hey, this is okay." Um and it's that ambiguous, right? you You have plenty of texts in the Bible that are not ambiguous at all uh, in terms of saying like, "No, this isn't okay, right? Um, so you you have you have some pretty clear prohibitions and then you have this one ambiguous story that's not really enough of a counterweight to say, Hey, um, this is something that's going to give us something secure, uh, a good foundation to say, we, we, we can take a stake in a battle that we're going to win. You're not going to win that battle with this mm-hmm, story. Right. Too right. And the prohibitions are too clear. Um, so, um, so, so that that's, that's kind of the main reason I, I turned to music. And then, um, the reason I turn to seventeenth-century music is just that I—it's I, a music I have a particular love for, and it's a—it's a music that I find particularly sensual. Um, so, um, so when I was when I first started to. Uh, proposed this topic, I was thinking like, oh, you know, I'm just going to look at like all the music on the story from the 17th century, uh, because there's Italian versions, um, there's a German version, there's, a, there's some French versions. Um, and then when I started to do the research, I was like, oh my goodness, there is so much uh, there to look at um, that I would not even, it would take me a lifetime just to catalog yeah. uh, the examples, right? So I, I just limited m- myself to um, English versions. But one, I just want to um, highlight one example from um, the mid-17th century Italy where the, it's by a guy named Carissimi who wrote, who was active in Rome and he wrote a, a musical version of the David and Jonathan story. And uh, one of his um, students was a guy named Antonio Chesti uh, who composed opera in, in Venice. And so there's this opening to the David and Jonathan music piece. And the the singing uh, in that piece does does not, just the singing by itself does not strike me as particularly saying like, oh yeah, these guys were lovers, right? But there's an instrumental opening to that piece that then Chesti, Uses that exact same music as the basis of a love duet in a later opera, right? So there's there's a sense in which, like, that music, right, that that chest, that Carismi is using works perfectly uh, in a context of romantic, ero- you know, erotic desire. Um, that music is just transferred without any kind of uh, alteration except that it's being sung instead of being played by instruments. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's an example of, if you really look at that connection, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't write about it in the in the book, so I would, you know, want to do a lot more research to to hammer that down if I was going to uh, really be responsible about making that connection. Uh, but there's an example, I think, from, from the past where you can actually say, oh, wait, there's something more than um, just... Um, they're looking at this text and not, not seeing these kind of erotic overtones. Um, they, they do seem to be seeing some kind of erotic overtone in in that context. Um, the The examples I use in the book are a few anthems by uh, Thomas Tompkins and Thomas Wilkes and Orlando Gib- Gibbons from the early 17th century. And then I look at the oratorio uh, Saul by Handel uh, from mm-hmm. the mid eighteenth century, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the one of the things that I I do in the um, in sort of the structure of the book, right, is I kind of lay out the theological basis f- for a particular reading of David and Jonathan as a gay couple. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's by Gary David Comstock, right, and so he's like, oh yeah, they're they're. Their uh, uh, their their love is God, right? They, that he's very clear that like they're they're not in love and, and God is someplace else. Like the love that they have between each other is God. and the language of the covenant makes that clear. And that and he uses Hayward's theology to kind of um, explicate that. And then I look at some of the problems with the text. and then I say, okay, because there's these problems with the text, um that there's all sorts of problems with with using this text. Oh, and we haven't even gotten into some of the really problematic aspects of the text um, in terms of um, ethnic violence, uh, you know, the creation of monarchy. Um, right. These are all yeah. really embedded in that story. So there's all sorts of ideological layers to the David story that I absolutely want to have nothing to do with, uh, right? <laughs> and so I don't... I One of the... one Another reason I... Uh, and I'm a little hesitant to just say like, oh, yeah, we can just look at this story and say, oh, it's so great is it's embedded in a context in the Bible that is really, really problematic. Um, yeah. And and the context in which it's embedded in these other, you know, in, in 17th, 18th century England are also problematic. Right. Then those need to be unpacked um, as well. Um. So this so this idea of like you have this utopian picture of a gay relationship um it's a it's not it doesn't look like a very healthy relationship because it's pretty one sided um yeah. and b you know like the other things that are happening in this story are also you know very misogynistic very racist very uh you know class hierarchy blah 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 all these things that that i would have problems with and that relational theologians would have problems with um gary talk right as he's doing this he just like erases all of the problematic stuff to say oh this is mm-hmm. a wonderful relation so that's that's part of the problem right but the the other problem is it's just too ambiguous and so i say like there's this process of interpretation and music interprets things music is an interpretive tool you can make a text sound happy or it can make a text sound sad uh, a com- composer can do that or a composer a performer can do things to uh, change the mood um so, you know, if we're dealing with an interpretive text, we have an interpret mode of interpretation that gets us to eroticism very easily. Um, and then I then I take a chapter and really look at my own listening practices as like an embodied being in the present. Right. And it's like, OK, the way I listen to music is the product of the late 20th century um -hmm. and and i i note that even some of the ways that i grew up listening to music are already passe right so like i talk about like the way the primary way i encounter music is through uh cds right and by now like people are like what's a cd right like (laughs) why don't you just right um and, you know, I mean, but there's something different about, you know, a CD has like it maintains things in a certain order and it just plays without I don't have to worry ads popping up. Um, you know, it's and it's it's a thing that I can look at and like put on my shelf and see how it fits with other um things, right. So that's 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 already just kind of saying, like if my primary mode of interacting with music is really CDs, that already marks me as an old foggy right? because that's <laughs> that's um not the way. Most people today uh, experience music, right? Like, so I actually mentioned going to a CD store to the, you know, and like a friend of us, like, you know, like, oh my God, you went to a CD store like, get, get with the times. Um, So, right. So, so anything, any, any of that kind of automatic that, that feeling of like we're hearing the music now and there's an immediate relationship to it, right. That actually comes with a lot of, of specific um, factors to your historical moment, right, that actually shape the way you experience the music. So the way I experience music on YouTube is a little different than the way I experience music on a CD, is a little different than the way I experience it live, uh, in some ways even different than that if I played on a record, right, like records, cassettes, uh, CDs, right, those are, those are three different technologies that you know, you're you're still listening to music, but they they shape that experience a little bit differently, right? Right. Um, and you have a different relationship to all of these different uh, mediations of the sound, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I'm saying is like, yeah, if if you're going to Really delve into subjective experience as a mode of understanding something, which is what what I'm doing in that chapter. Is like, yeah, and that's one thing that queer the theolo- uh, not queer the- queer musicology uh, really did a lot in the early '90s. It doesn't do it so much anymore, and I don't know why that stopped. But there's a lot of first-person writing. When que- queer musicology first started to come into the picture of like, oh, this is this is like my experience of being a sexual being. This is my experience of being a musical being. How do these things come together? Uh, that was very very prominent in the early '90s uh, throughout the '90s, and then it kind of uh, you you don't find so much of that kind of writing anymore. But that writing in the '90s was really the the, the writing that that um, uh, shaped me. Um, And so I I go into that experience of like, yeah, so if you're if you're dealing with the eroticism, something you cannot experience eroticism outside of a subjective position. Right. That's this is like Mm -hmm. there is no objective eroticism. There's not okay. There's eroticism over there and I can name that. Right. If it's not affecting you subjectively, it's not erotic. Right. So so really going into that subjective experience of of experience things erotically. Right. Is kind of the first step of. Saying okay, this is a way of eroticizing the text is to listen to it uh, with music and to to explain how that works. You have to explain how that's happening subjectively, and the only person you really have access to their subjectivity is yourself. So start there, and then you can then you can compare experience and say, oh, okay, there's there's this thing that feels like it's just me, but it's actually society shaping me in certain ways, and I can interrogate uh, that shaping, right? So that so I look yeah. at at my experience with um these different recordings of the seventeenth century music. Um, and I start off just kind of saying like okay here's here's this um text this this uh, version by Wheels, right? And it 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 kind of grows to this point where, you know, it's, it's it's kind of sad. And then when it kind of gets to the words, passing the love of women, it just kind of blossoms and the voices, right. Start moving around and kind of crossing each other a lot. So you kind of have this feeling of, of like limbs, kind of like moving in and out of each other. Right. And so it's, it's incredibly uh, vivid image, right. Of like here, once we, once we get to the words, passing the love of women, right. We really get the sense of, of things interacting in this very, you know, um, central or even sexual, sexual way. Um, a lot of that has to do with how it's performed, right? So some performances will bring that more than other ones, but the, but just, just on the level of the composition, we'll certainly create something where that those words passing the love of women really become, comes a moment of just like, well, you know, things are interacting in a way that they weren't interacting before we got to those words. So that's a text that's, that's a a musical composition that, you know, really does seem just, just at the level of the rhetoric um, to eroticize the relationship just on the, on, in that way. Um, Then there was an, there's another uh, version of that, that text that doesn't talk about that. It just all, it just selects the text, uh, then David saying this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan. That's th- those are the only words to the entire text. And there's one version where I was like, like, oh yeah, this this text is not going to get you to um, an erotic understanding of this text at all. It's just like okay. And then the recording, none of the recordings I had listened to was there anything erotic about those recordings? Then there was this third recording that I, or maybe fourth or fifth recording that I was like, okay, I should listen to as many as I can just to have a sense of what's, what's out there. And that, that final recording listened to, like that recording just like really builds, builds the tension, builds attention until you get to the word Jonathan and just kind of releases this tension on the word Jonathan. And this is kind of, there's this cascading, almost orgasmic, just kind of like Jonathan, 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 Jonathan until you get to the end. Right. So that's something Mm -hmm. that the performers are doing, not necessarily the composer, but I mean, I heard that I was like, Oh my goodness, this is like way more erotic than even the version that's, that's uh, dwelling on the love of women. So there's, there's things that happen in the music that, um, that can you like really bring out an erotic experience? Then you you know I talk about like how um, you know how I relate to that kind of you know get drawn into that that sensuality. Um, and then the last music I talk about is um, Handel Saul, um, and that that's a text that that's that's a musical version that I just um, never really uh, felt eroticized the text that much. Um one musicologist I talked to said, Oh yeah, no, totally, because the love duet she, she hears the love duet between David and Michal uh, in that text as so conventionalized and so stereotyped that it's almost making fun of the heterosexuality. Um I, I didn't hear it that way, but she's like, Yeah, that's 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 just a love duet that's that's just like hitting this stereotype so hard it's not even there's nothing authentic in it aside from like here i'm just going to give you all the cliches of a love love duet um and um like okay that's that's a really interesting way to to approach that particular text i i'm not sure i hear it that way but um uh, I respect where she's coming from a whole lot. Uh, so, so she 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 definitely hears that as a as a gay version of the story. I I have a hard time time hearing it in that case. Um, the the irony there, and that chapter is called so uh, Handel's All of the Ironies of Identification is that it's very likely that Handel himself was gay. The musicologists have like dug up. Um, you know, evidence that suggests. I mean, like he was, he was keeps showing up in social circles where there's a lot of gay people. In yeah, in both I in thought Israel that was
0: very England. interesting.
1: Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but
0: I found that uh, discussion very interesting because I'd somehow never came across it before.
1: <laughs> yeah, but again, it's it's a it's the same kind of question, right? Because there's no there's no direct evidence, right? Right. Handle have any love letters of Handel. We don't have any court records of him getting arrested. Uh, we don't have any any of the kind of concrete evidence that Handel had sex with another man, right? So we just have this circumstantial evidence, um right, including, you know, this this story of, like Handel being asked like, you know, by the king, like, why don't you ever date a woman? And he's like, I'm too busy writing music, right? That's, you know, um, <laughs> You know that, that's that's uh, a you know I mean he could you know could say he was ace or something but um, you know it's, it's 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 one of those those sort of things where if you're reading between the lines it's like oh yeah and when you are in the closet right you there's certain ways of reading between the lines that like you learn how to do um, right and so and I think that's one of the things that's one of the things that in the newer generation of queer theory I think we've we're kind of losing that sense of of because it's so open now right people forget that um everything everything you did as you know a gay person or someone who was attracted to the same sex or however you whatever vocabulary you want to use um had to be coded right and so um those codes are different but those codes existed right and so you can learn how to read those codes and you can learn to recognize those codes um and you know, so so that practice of of realizing, like, wait a second, not everything's on the surface. I think that's something that we're kind of losing our touch for getting a sense of um, in queer scholarship because we don't actually have to do that. And I, I kind of feel like I experienced a little bit of both because I feel like, you know, in my youth, it was still kind of like the closet was still very much a thing. And I um, had that experience of being in the closet. And not that people don't still have that experience, but um you know, the, the culture that was around was also just like, oh, yeah, coming out of the closet is a big deal. And and there's so many you talk to so many people who hid it, uh, you know, for so long that you realize like, oh, yeah, like hiding and communicating through the hiding is just totally normal. And I, I just feel like there's less of, of that now in terms mm-hmm. of, of that process. But it's it. But yeah, when we're asking the question about handle we're exact, asking the exact same question we're asking about David and Jonathan. Right. And. It's it's the same same problem of like okay we have ambiguous evidence um, how is that ambiguous evidence going to be deployed politically um, and in whose interest right that's that's gonna be the real question
0: right um, and yeah so I wanted to share a quote from your book actually because oh, you okay. contra- you. It's a very short quote, but I think it illustrates a lot of um, what's going on um, in the book as far as, like, how important uh, context is. And you're talking about your experience with absolute music, mm-hmm. uh, which I uh, understood to mean that uh, music just has one way of being understood um, and, and interpreted. Um And then this quote is kind of in contrast to that. And you say, in contrast to the widespread notion that music is a universal language, musical perception is in fact highly mediated by cultural and linguistic factors that vary cross-culturally and over time. And that's on page 99 if anyone uh, wants to look it up. But I, I, I feel like that 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 uh, really captures like the importance of context and what we were talking about.
1: Yeah. So so yeah. So this idea of absolute music is actually the idea that music shouldn't be interpreted at all. That it just is. Um, and because it can't be interpreted, it is there for the music universal language because everybody has acted the exact same thing. And this is an idea that. Uh, really was dominant, um, kind of a dominant way of thinking about classical music until the 1990s. From uh, from about the 1850s to the 1990s, not not that it was the only way of thinking about classical music, but it was kind of the the, the reigning discourse. Um, and there was a lot of like in the 19th century, there was a lot of very fierce polemic between people who thought that way and people thought, no, like you, you should be able to make music about a clown and people should know that it's about a clown and that's what music should do, right? Is depict a clown and the absolute music people are like, no, music should not depict a clown. Music should just be music and good music is just music. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this 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 question of like should music represent something uh, or not was was a huge debate, and it it got resolved in various ways. But this idea that music is the universal language, right, is really something that comes out of a specifically nineteenth-century German way of thinking about music. It's not something you find uh, in the nineteenth century outside of Germany, but then it sort of gets exported to wherever classical music is uh, performed. And there's a great book. Uh, from I think the 80s um, that's looking at how classical musicians are trained and really says like as you're learning how to play classical music all these assumptions about like music just is and should not depict something and is not you know a vehicle for emotion uh, you know those assumptions really get drilled into you as you're learning your scales and as you're learning your etudes and as you're learning your your pieces Um, so, so these were these were these this was kind of the assumption, right, that governed the concert life when I went to concerts, when I was a kid, uh, when I, you know, when you get, um, you know, when you go to your violin lesson or your viol lesson, right, there's, there's all these attitudes about, like, music's just shapes and forms, um, and this idea of music just being a form was actually something that, you know, without content, right, was actually something that, as a closeted gay person, right, who was trying to uh, avoid my sexual desires, music actually became something that, was sort of the opposite of I I wouldn't say the opposite of eroticism but definitely the opposite of sexuality right where music Mm -hmm. was we're listening to music in a certain way in a certain context that was not about physical movement that was just about like closing your eyes and like feeling cut off from the physical world and just being lost in this pure sound that was very comforting so I would say that was an eroticism of musical experience that was absolutely divorced from any kind of sexuality. Right. It was a way of saying Mm -hmm. like, okay, if I close my eyes, I'm not in the physical world. I'm not going to see a beautiful man. I'm not going to, um, you know, be tempted by anything. I'm not going to be drawn into anything. I'm just going to close my eyes and get lost in these beautiful sounds. And then I'm not, then I don't have to worry about sexual temptation. Okay. Um, and that, and in, in a lot of ways that was just, you know, uh, you know, kind of a natural outgrowth of the assumptions that were present in the way classical music was performed, um, in some ways still is, um, and, uh, but certainly until the 1990s, uh, every classical music concert like was governed by that assumption. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, so that's that idea of absolute music, right? And that the idea of absolute music is a historical phenomenon, it emerges through language in a particular time and a particular place. So that idea that I can close my eyes and be cut off from the physical world by listening to music, right? That's not just something I made up. That's something that is shaped by a historical discourse, right? I -hmm. I couldn't just close my eyes and listen to music and, and like have this pretty far reaching range of associations of what I'm doing without a long history of that certain assumptions being put into place, through arguments that were and and actual uh, sometimes physical battles uh, over like what music should sound like or what it should do right so that sense of like I feel like when I'm closing my eyes and just listening to absolute music I'm escaping the world of you know like something's here something's there and things change I'm just like in this perfect world that like is is the perfect world right and then when mm-hmm. I look when I look at that experience more closely it's like wait a second that whole experience um. Was made up in the 19th century. That's not the way people thought about music. Nobody experienced music that way uh, before the 19th century, right? So, so this idea that that um, you know music just, like speaks to you and it, you get a meaning from it, and then that's what it is. Um, that's just that's just a complete falsehood. And I remember uh, one of the books uh, in college that I read that really was kind of like blew my mind was this book called the idea of absolute music where somebody just like unpacks how that idea was created. And I was like, Oh my goodness, everything I just thought was just like reality period. Right. Was actually something that was invented not that long ago. Um, so that's, that's one way that, that, um, you know, absolute music is really intention. The idea of absolute music is intention with this idea of like, yeah, everything is historically situated because it's, it's trying to fight against that. So, so internally, there's this battle right between um, any kind of lingering uh, effects of that absolute musical discourse, which I don't want to throw away completely. Um, you know, there's, there's still parts of that that I value and there's certain experiences that come with that, that are important to me that I, that I value and, and, and like, Um but there's also a lot about that that I was just like, oh, yeah, that this doesn't work at all. Um, right. That that is that itself is a historical formation. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm teaching this class right now on music, uh, on religion, sexuality and the arts. And I I gave one example, uh, you know, I said music's not the universal language. And they're like, no, 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 it's it's the universal language. I'm like, no, no. And so I played I said, I'm not going to I played a, a song by an African group. Um and, you know, I said, OK, so I'm going to play you this music and you're going to tell me what the emotions are. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is really happy music. And then I was like, OK, and this is the text. And it was like the most tragic text you could imagine. And Yikes. Like, oh, yeah. Like, there's no way they could have gotten from that music to that text. Right. So there's mm-hmm. there's no they're hearing something in the music, but they're not hearing actually what the musicians are telling you it's about. Right. Mm-hmm. So that that's a really good example of um you know, music from particular culture can translate in certain ways, but that's an act of translation into a different cultural context. And that, that can only mm-hmm. happen that translation can only happen because it's not a universal language, right? it's it's a it's a different language that can be translated. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so one of one of the uh, one of the ideas that I am always very, 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 very eager to slay, probably. Uh, more than any other is the idea that music is the universal language because um, it's just wrong. And there's very few things that I'll just be like, Oh, that's just wrong. But that is, (laughs) that is one purpose. Like that's just a wrong idea. Let's just get rid of that (laughs) idea.
0: Um, well, this has been a really rich conversation. Um, I've learned a lot and I, I'm just really grateful for you for taking the time to come on here and talk about your work.
1: Yeah, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a lot of fun, and um, I really appreciate uh, the time.
0: Yeah, um, if people want to um, maybe follow you on social media, uh, can they do that? And if so, where do they go to find you?
1: um so you can find me on twitter and i go by apocalypse slouch and the handle is at dirkster 42 underscore
0: awesome um and i will uh, put that in the show notes real quick too uh, so people can just click a link um that should be really easy all right uh thanks again
1: thank you so much it's been a lot of fun
0: Thank you for listening to Seminary for the Rest of Us, a show where everyone is welcome to God talk. Find us on the web at seminary.show, on Twitter at seminaryshow, and or send us an email at seminary.show at gmail.com. Oh, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to give us a rating. Thanks again, and catch you next time.